we are currently at a celebratory point in the liturgical calendar known as Epiphany. And as I've stated before, the word Epiphany simply means a revelatory manifestation of a divine being. The Gospel of St. John presents us with seven Epiphany accounts of the Christ, or seven accounts in which someone acknowledges the manifestation of Jesus's divinity. For example, within the narrative of John's gospel, someone will declare a statement like, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So then, here at All Saints Church, this epiphany season, we are exploring those seven epiphany accounts of Jesus presented through the Gospel of St. John. Today's sermon text comes from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42, and these verses record an epiphany account that took place in the region of Samaria. As we consider this event, which communicates a revelatory manifestation of Jesus's divine nature, I want us to consider three points this morning. Number one, I want us to consider the Samaritan woman at the well. If you look at the cover of your worship guide this morning, you'll see a picture there depicting that scene. The second thing I want us to consider is the epiphany of Jesus as the Christ, attested by not only the woman at the well, but the Samaritans in general. And then third, I want us to consider some applications for us here at All Saints Church. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 42, and then I will pray. John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. 
the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would reveal to us the significance and importance of Jesus being revealed to the Samaritans as the Christ. Father, help us rightly understand your word, and then help us to live in light of this knowledge. We pray this by the power of the Spirit, and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, let's begin by drawing our attention to the first point. The Samaritan woman at the well. Look at verses 1 through 5 again with me. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. 
These verses present us with the occasion for the epiphany account in chapter 4 of St. John's Gospel. Jesus was leaving the region of Judea in the south. He was traveling north to Galilee, his home region, and he passed through Samaria. In verse 4, St. John says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And what is meant by this statement is that Jesus was compelled to pass through Samaria. More accurately translated, Jesus believed it was necessary as part of his earthly ministry to pass through Samaria. And the reason I say that is there were three popular routes that connected the northern province of Galilee to the southern region of Judea. There was a western route that followed close to the Mediterranean Sea, as well as an eastern thoroughfare that looped out toward the Decapolis. And then there was a third road that went directly north and south through all three regions of Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. If you've ever traveled on I-95 South through Virginia, you are probably familiar with the three highway options that are available in Richmond. You can, can travel on 195, which is the western route around the city, or you can take 295, which takes you around the city, but towards the east, or you can stay on I-95 and pass directly through the heart of Richmond. In a very similar way, Jesus had options. But he chose to travel on I-95 right through the heart of Samaria and into Sychar. And this is of consequence because the highly traveled route by the Jews was toward the east, in which they would avoid major Samaritan cities. And the reason for this avoidance was because of a shared disdain that the Jews and Samaritans had for each other. And this contempt dated back to the days of the divided kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah regarded Jerusalem, the city of David, and the place where Solomon's temple was built as their capital city, as their religious center. The northern kingdom of Israel made Samaria its capital and Mount Gerizim its place of worship. And worship that was conducted in Samaria instead of in Jerusalem was seen by the Judeans as unauthorized, to say the least. And adding to the strife between Israel and Judah was the Assyrian conquest of Israel in 722 BC. When the northern tribes were defeated, many of their inhabitants were deported, and in their place, Assyrian foreigners took up residence. What followed was a syncretistic culture and religion between the small population of Israelites who were left behind in the north and the new foreign inhabitants from Assyria. John Calvin explains this dynamic by stating the following. The Samaritans were known by the Jews to be the scum of a people gathered from among foreigners, having corrupted the worship of God and introduced many spurious and wicked ceremonies. 
They were justly regarded by the Jews with abhorrence. But as the Samaritans were despised by the Jews, so the Samaritans, on the other hand, held the Jews in contempt. It is also important to note that while the Samaritans were syncretistic, they did regard the Pentateuch, the, five, the first five books of the Bible, as God's word, and they saw the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as their fathers. Even so, the Samaritans were seen by the Jews as lost covenant breakers, living detached lives away from God's covenant people. We see this relational dynamic come to the forefront in our text as Jesus interacts with a Samaritan woman. Look at verses 6 through 9. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In Judea, no woman would have spoken to Jesus in such a punchy manner, being that he was a rabbi with an established school of disciples, let alone a man. However, given the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, this woman felt free to speak her mind without any hesitation. Furthermore, given the details that John provides, we can also assume that this woman was uncouth and not one for formalities. For example, in verse 6, John tells us that Jesus came to the well about the sixth hour. The Jewish clock began at 6 a.m., which means that the sixth hour was high noon. And all throughout antiquity, in almost every culture, the normal practice was to gather water in the morning. And this is for two reasons. First, water was gathered in the morning so that daily chores could get started shortly after sunrise, washing, cleaning, and cooking. The later you went to the well to fetch your water meant the later your workday started, and thus the later your workday ended. Before electricity, the working day was ruled by the sun. Therefore, getting up and getting to the well at the break of day was of first importance. The second and lesser reason for gathering water in the morning was to do such strenuous work in the cool of the day before it got hot. But because this woman was gathering water alone at high noon in the heat of the sun, and because in verses 16 through 18, we learn that she was immoral, we can deduce that this woman was ostracized by her fellow Samaritans. Avoiding the well in the morning hours probably meant that this woman was trying to avoid the shame and guilt of her sexual sin. 
she was probably purposely avoiding the other woman in her community. She was trying to stay away from the women who gathered at the well early in the morning. Perhaps she was even hiding from some women whom she sinned against. With that, we shouldn't automatically assume that her exclusion from the community was unwarranted or unjust. Again, in verses 16 through 18, we are told that she lived a life of immorality. And because the Samaritans understood the Pentateuch to be inspired, it is not unreasonable to assume that her excommunication was motivated by love for justice and possibly love for her, maybe even both. As Tim Bailey explains in his extraordinary book, The Grace of Shame, he says, God gave us physical pain to protect our bodies and shame to protect our souls. Therefore, it is not wrong to think that this woman was under just discipline, experiencing shame and guilt with the hope that she would come back in repentance. With that, draw your attention to verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Because of the woman's short response to Jesus's request as a Jew, asking her, a Samaritan woman, for water, he says, if you truly knew who I was, you would have asked me for a drink and I would give you living water. The woman, continuing in her uncouth tone, pokes fun at Jesus by stating that he has nothing to draw water with. So how could he offer her anything, especially as she has immediate access to her people's well, which is a very subtle claim to ethnic and cultural superiority in this moment. And she continued poking fun by sarcastically asking if Jesus thought he was greater than Jacob. And the irony of her question is that Jesus is, in fact, greater than Jacob. And this is demonstrated by Jesus's response, an offer of not just living water, but water that leads to eternal life. You see, Jesus employs a play on words here. As living water is a typical reference to water that comes from a moving stream or a bubbling spring. Living water is water that is not stagnant. But what Jesus offers is not simply water that isn't stagnant, but rather spiritual water that quenches one's thirst for righteousness 
that leads to eternal life. And the woman seems to understand what Jesus is offering in terms of eternal life as she plainly asks him to give her this water. Thus, her statement about not having to return to the well is not a desire to never fetch water again, but instead a desire to escape the shame and the guilt that she experiences at the well because of her sin. Look at verses 16 through 24. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. But the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Two noteworthy things happen here. First, Jesus shows his knowledge of her shame and guilt, and thus also demonstrates that he is aware of her desire for righteousness, which leads to eternal life. Second, in what appears to be a defense mechanism, a means to hide her sin, to deflect and get off the subject of her sin, the woman responds to Jesus by asking him a highly debated question of the day, a question that she probably wasn't sincerely wanting an answer to. However, Jesus uses her question to prove that both Jews and Samaritans are in need of righteousness that comes from his living water, not just her. Jesus said that the hour is coming when worship of God will not take place in Samaria on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, as the liturgical systems associated with each location miss the mark. Of true worship. For example, the Samaritans had broken the law of God by merging with the Assyrian worship. While the Samaritans were relatively sincere, Jesus points out that they didn't know what they were worshiping or who they were worshiping. Whatever worship they did, according to the Pentateuch, was invalid as it was mixed with unregulated principles. In short, they did not worship God rightly according to his order. In contrast, the Jews had been worshiping according to God's prescribed order. However, like the Samaritans, their worship was unacceptable to God as well. And that is because worship had become an outward action that did not match the inward reality. Therefore, Isaiah began his prophecy with the following judgment from God. Quote, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. 
I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Ultimately, God said that he was not satisfied with worship that externally followed his prescribed order, but lacked faith. And this is why God says through the prophet Jeremiah, I am not concerned with the outward sign of circumcision. What I desire is the inward circumcision of the heart. Thus, here in John chapter 4, when Jesus speaks about true worshipers worshiping in spirit and truth, he is referring to faithful worship that follows the prescribed form, that being the truth, but also comes from a heart of faith, that being a person's spirit. And this is clearly communicated by the grammatical construction of Jesus' words in verse 24. The Greek word pneuma, which is translated into English as spirit, is also the same word that is used when speaking of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. However, when this noun appears alone by itself, without a definite article, as it does here in verse 24, it is a reference to a person's rational spirit, the power by which the human being feels, thinks, wills, and decides. This is why your English translation in front of you this morning does not capitalize the S in spirit, as this is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. Instead, Jesus is saying true worship comes from a heart of faith, one's spirit, and follows the forms of God's prescribed order of worship, the truth that is revealed in Scripture. And there is a great lesson to be learned here, particularly because we are people who place a great emphasis on our liturgical form. While I do not think that we are in danger of adopting unbiblical forms of worship, merging with pagan culture like the Samaritans, here at All Saints, we should be cautious and make sure that our liturgical practices are not merely superficial gestures like the Jews. We need to make sure that our participation in liturgy is an outward sign of a heart that is full of faith, worshiping in spirit according to the truth. Consider verses 25 through 30. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. In response to Jesus, the woman tries to deflect again, this time inferring that the answer to a question such as hers will ultimately be answered by the Messiah when he comes. 
Jesus then takes this opportunity to reveal that he is, in fact, the Christ. And after being confronted about her sin and offered righteousness that removes guilt and shame, the woman left her water jug and went into town, alerting her neighbors of Jesus's words. This brings us to the second point, the epiphany of Jesus as the Christ attested by the Samaritans. Consider verses 39 and 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. He said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We know that this is indeed the savior of the world. These verses present us with the epiphany recorded in John chapter 4, particularly verse 42. We know that this is indeed the savior of the world. As I've previously stated throughout this sermon series, in order for someone to experience faith in Jesus, to experience an epiphany, the word of God must be preached or read or taught. And such was the case, as we saw with Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel in John chapter 2. Each one of them had an individual declare to them who Jesus was before or in conjunction with their epiphany. And the same is true for you and me. Someone read or preached or explained the gospel to us, and the Holy Spirit illuminated the word in our hearts and minds, revealing that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. The Samaritans had the privilege of not only hearing the testimony of the woman, but they also had their epiphanies personally informed and shaped by the word made flesh, by the living word. And thus, John said in his prologue, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And being instructed by Jesus for two days, the conclusion from the Samaritans was, we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And their point in stating that Jesus was the Savior of the world had nothing to do with a universal application of his atonement. That is, they were not making a claim that Jesus was going to save every person without exception. Instead, their point was that Jesus's salvation was not tribal or local as being solely Jewish, but rather globally applied to all people groups without distinction. What this meant for the Samaritans is that even as Calvin put it, the scum of a people gathered from among foreigners could be saved from their sin, shame, guilt, and ultimate judgment under God. What this meant for the Samaritans is that salvation had come to them, an ostracized people, a people hated and despised. Furthermore, this point becomes greater when you consider what John said in verse 4. Jesus believed that it was necessary 
for him to go through the heart of Samaria. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Because he is the savior of the world, of all people groups without distinction, red and yellow, black and white. And he wanted to save these lost covenant breakers. Jesus wanted these wretched Samaritans. And this brings us to our third and final point. In closing, I want to make some practical applications for All Saints Church. Draw your attention to verses 31 and 38. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone bought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. The first thing to note here is Jesus's shared desire with the Father and the Spirit to save sinners. Jesus was not concerned with eating physical food because he was hungry to do the Father's will, which was saving those who were far off. This morning, if you can relate to the woman at the well. This morning, if you feel ashamed and guilty of your sin, know this, that Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to give you living water. Jesus came to give you righteousness that will satisfy your thirst. And the appropriate response, the appropriate application is for you to believe in Jesus and repent of your sins. The second point is Jesus's exhortation for the disciples to go and reap a harvest. His whole account in John chapter 4 is a precursor to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. In which Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Chapter 4 is also a, a foreshadow of Acts chapter 1-8, in which Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The church is to follow Jesus and go into the world and engage with the lost. However, you and I are prone to be apprehensive. We have a proclivity to not follow Jesus in engaging with sinners. And I believe that's because we have a propensity to forget our once shared identity with the Samaritans. 
We too were once poor, miserable, blind, and wretched. But we forget that. And we act like the Judeans by believing and thinking that those who are far off do not deserve the grace of the gospel. All the while forgetting that we didn't deserve the grace of the gospel either. With that being said, this morning in Sunday school, Stephanie Smith from Bible to School invited All Saints Church to participate in the teaching and proclamation of the gospel to children in the Lancaster public school system. And as a point of application, and in connection with our evangelical vision for 2023 as a church, I want us to soberly consider this opportunity as a legitimate means to reap a harvest. Now, some of you have a field that you are already sowing in and reaping in around your kitchen table among your children. That is your mission, and rightly so, you should be invested in that. But for those of you who do not have children yet, or maybe you have children, but they are grown and out of the house, this morning, would you consider volunteering and teaching a Bible class in the Lancaster City public school system? Would you consider reaping a harvest among those who are outside of God's covenant people, those who are lost and in need of living water. Dear saints, I pray that like the woman at the well, you have had your thirst for righteousness quenched by the living water that leads to eternal life and only comes from Christ. I pray that, like the Samaritans, you have had an epiphany, that you yourself have recognized that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And having experienced such an epiphany, I pray that you would find it necessary to go into the world and reap a harvest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.